Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, hey, everybody. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to start off this message by giving a huge shout out to all of our Sun Ridgers who, for whatever reason, you don't feel that you can come and join us on Sunday. We know that many of you uh, have family that are compromised or you yourself are. And I just don't want you to think that we've forgotten about you. Uh, we think about you. We talk about you a lot in, in the office here in a good way. And uh, if you're missing us, I just want you to know we, we really miss you too. So uh, don't think that we've forgotten you. We're going to get through this. Uh, we're going to do it together. And uh, eventually we will conquer COVID in this community and, of course, in our nation. And we're going to all be gathering together in church again. And that's going to be a great day. But in the meantime, we want you to know that we love you and we haven't forgotten you. I also want to say hello to those of you who, for whatever reason, you're checking Sunridge out. Uh, we realize that in this day and age, especially uh, the online presence, either listening to our podcast or watching this video, uh, is how people kind of look for churches. And so you, you're you gaining a lot. It used to have to be able to show up at a church and waste a whole Sunday, and now you just can uh, spend a few moments checking out different churches. We want you to know that we're on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. So we are committed to both of those. And if you're exploring faith, uh, we're here for you. And we're an open church that asks a lot of questions and provides as many answers as we can. We embrace people from all uh, walks of life. And yet uh, we know that some of you are looking for a church where you can sink your roots in and uh, get connected and grow and, uh, and then become a part of what we're doing here in our mission that is, of course, is Jesus's mission. So thanks for checking us out. We, we really appreciate it. Uh, and we're honored that you'll spend a few moments listening to us and uh, watching us. We do have uh, one big outdoor service at 1030 uh, in the morning on Sundays. Uh, so you're socially distanced and everything. And so if you are looking for a church, that's a much better experience than just this, me talking to a camera. I have to say, like, all pastors are struggling with this. It's so weird. But uh, it's what we do uh, to make sure that everybody gets to hear the message. So, um, But you can come on a Sunday morning. We'd love to see you. And if you do, make sure you say hello to me. I love meeting the new people in our community. We are studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're kind of wrapping up chapter five today and beginning next Sunday through the Christmas season. We're going to focus on the coming of our Lord, the Messiah. And so this is a nice place to take a break because we're going to finish up chapter five. And then we're also finishing up a section, as we'll talk about, of that chapter. But we're going to drop right into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, that's all we have to do, right? So as I mentioned, we are, excuse me, wrapping up this little mini section in the Sermon on the Mount. Excuse me again. And um, uh, scholars call these the antitheses of Jesus. There are six. We're looking at the sixth one today. We've talked about how anger and contempt can affect us and divorce the the commitment to a family unit. We've looked at at adultery and lust, uh, telling the truth. Last week, we looked at retaliation. And this is the last of these antitheses. And really, they crystallize uh, who Jesus is in his message, which is essentially what we'll see here is that we're to live a life of limitless love. And once again, as he has in this section, Jesus is launching the concept with this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, the heard it said is not gossip that's going on, but he's referring to uh, how the Torah was being taught, the law that the Hebrew people followed. And what we're discovering is these rabbinical teachings that go all the way back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the time of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Um, had eroded almost like um, uh, topography can over time from wind and rain uh, so that the original topography is totally unrecognizable. Or another way to look at it is how if your compass setting is off, you slowly drift from what your intended destination was. And in this last of the six antitheses, we have the ultimate example of how Human beings can take what God has given and distort it. In Matthew's Gospel 5:43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You probably could quote that if you even if you're remotely uh, involved in church or maybe you, you have it up on walls in your house or you've seen it in Sunday school. Love your neighbor, yes. We all get that. But where does the Old Testament say to hate? your enemy. Well, it doesn't. And as we've been doing uh, through this part of Jesus' teaching, we're going to take a look at a few things that give us a historical and biblical context. Number one, the Torah says, love your neighbor, but it doesn't say, hate your enemy. If anything, the first mention of love your neighbor implies the exact opposite. It's found in Leviticus 19.18. This is the first time this phrase, love your neighbor, appears in Scripture. And it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in this first mention of love your neighbor, the, the Torah is so explicit in not veering off, not accommodating this other phrase that had become part of the rabbinical teaching to hate your neighbor. So 
then that causes you to speculate, as many scholars have, like, where did this come from? A few things that I found in studying this. One, it could just be faulty logic. You know, there's kind of a way that we think if the Bible says that, then it means this, of course. So then, well, if I'm to love my neighbor, then it logically follows that I'm to hate my enemy. And history tells us that this phrase became even a Jewish idiom. Oh, you know, that love your neighbor, hate your enemy thing. And if you say something enough, it becomes assumed that it is true. And, you know, as I was studying for this, I was thinking about like all the things that I used to think were true because somebody said it or they said it a lot, you know, and it was always prefaced by the Bible says that dancing is bad. Uh, the Bible says you can't play cards like poker or anything with regular playing cards. The Bible says you can't play drums in church. The Bible says you can't have loud music in your church. You can't have rock and roll. I know I am uh, dating myself here. And the Bible says you can't drink wine. The Bible says you should only have church friends. You know, if, if you're listening to me right now and you can't recall these things, you're like, what is this guy talking about? First of all, be grateful. <laughs> and then realize that we have them today, we just don't know what they are in this moment. So faulty logic can kind of build and add to uh, what our understanding of scripture is. And also secondly, I think possibly maybe a little self-righteousness. I mean, if you just imagine that you're an early Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, and every morning, and every, every morning you begin your day, and every day, you end your day with a Shema that's found in the Torah, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And so every day you're saying this, you're thinking about it during the day about loving God with all your heart and with all your soul. And because you're truly devout as a follower of Yahweh, you're genuinely trying to do this. But you find yourself surrounded by other nations and other people have infiltrated your culture who have no idea about your God. In fact, they might have an entirely different God. And so they have an entirely different value system. But you, you're a faithful follower and they're not. So you're in and they're out. God loves you, but not them. So you're just going to do the same thing as God does. And so even the psalmist says things like this in Psalm 139, 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. It's like, God, I'm on your side because I'm pursuing you. And because I do those that aren't, I'll hate them. I'll hate them for you. But probably, and this is the third uh, reason that I think this false notion comes up that we're to hate our enemies, I think it's a normal emotional response. I mean, again, it's easy to imagine how hating your enemies developed if we just insert ourselves into the cultural situation of the day. The Hebrew people 
have been living under the thumb of Rome for 600 years. That's three, three times as long as America has been a nation. And imagine you are a first century Hebrew and daily you run up against oppression. Food is scarce, property, your real estate is stolen. And it's being stolen by the Roman Empire so that you have little freedom over your comings and goings. And you're oppressed daily. You're imposed upon, carry my pack, as we talked about last week. Give me your shirt. And so you don't really have any autonomy. And so these, this effect, this oppression affects their thoughts. And so then it would be an act of self-defense to place borders around who you're going to love. I love what Jonathan Pennington has said in his commentary in the Sermon on the Mount. For a people long oppressed and who were currently living under the heavy cultural and financial boot of the Roman Empire, hating one's enemies seemed not only natural, but divinely patriotic. Does that resonate with you? You see, it's all kind of humbling when you think about it, that, you know, it's not just that it's easy for me to find a rut of, of hating my enemy, which is huge when Jesus says we can't, we're not to do that, but also that we have the ability to inject into the pure teachings of Jesus or take away so that we miss the point entirely when we're reading the exact words of Jesus. And if you think about this, the people that were the honored teachers of Jesus's day, the Pharisees, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. They were so wrong that Jesus has to make these huge corrections to their teachings. They were so wrong that they hated Jesus for doing that. And ultimately they would be his accusers at his trial, the son of God. And so me personally, as a Bible teacher, that's, that's certainly humbling, but also for all of us as a simple Jesus follower, it should cause us to think, should give us pause. Could, where am I off? How am I adopting beliefs that look nothing like what Jesus intended? And how am I extrapolating things into the teachings of Jesus that really don't connect? It's especially easy to do this with people. And this is the second historical and biblical concept I think we need to see that everything in this teaching hinged on the words neighbor, enemy, and love. You see, if you were a first century Jew, the controversy and debate around these concepts would center around these words directly from the Torah. For instance, neighbor, who is my neighbor? Of course, it would be devout Jews that were like me and committed like I am in my circle, possibly, you know, moving out to a little bigger circle, the less devout they believe, but they believe differently. But for sure, traitors couldn't be in, like Matthew, the tax collector. So who is my neighbor today? We ask the same question. A neighbor is someone who is like me and likes me. And the truth is, it can be difficult even to love my neighbor. Interesting here, uh, the same chapter from Torah, where God says, love your neighbor, also says something else. And if, we, if you just keep reading from 
Leviticus 19.18, which we've already looked at, you, from this first mention of neighbor, you can see something interesting. Verse 33, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not ill treat them. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The law even says that these people that would be beyond your circle, they are also your neighbor. Now, the, the other word, another word that uh, is affecting this is enemy. And of course, if you're a first century Hebrew, your enemy is any Roman soldier or possibly Roman authority. They are persecuting you. But that could be even bigger. Like maybe they're not persecuting you, but they're part of that category. They are a Roman. And certainly your enemy would be a countryman who betrays his people, again, like Matthew or tax collectors. And possibly immigrants could be an enemy to you because you're kind of walled up in this culture and they have a different ethnicity. They come from a different region or they have a different religion. We know even from the gospels that the Jews hated the Samaritans, which were kind of like the half breeds to them. So we roll that up. It's like, we ask that, we ask the question, who is my enemy? And commonly an enemy is anyone who isn't like me, who doesn't like me and likes things I don't like. The last word that is affecting how we interpret this is love. There's a neighbor, enemy, and now love. When we hear love, we think of tolerance, right? We think, be nice, these fuzzy, happy thoughts, which, may, which for some of us might be an improvement, right? But uh, the word that Jesus used here is agape. It's a love of the will. It means to place their well-being ahead of ours. Uh, Scott McKnight says this, love, or this word agape, is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. So who in our life is going to get that kind of love? Maybe the people closest to us that are most like us, but we're going to be challenged beyond that. What is super helpful to me here is to realize that we all have this list. We have a list of enemies and neighbors. We have, we have a category that we put people or people groups in. Maybe it would be good for us all to make that list as an acknowledgement, to actually write it down. Because all of this boils down to two questions. Number one, who counts? And what does it mean to count? Who counts? It's neighbors versus enemies. This is the conversation that is generated uh, that, that, uh, where Jesus um, tells the story of the good Samaritan. He's talking about loving your neighbor. And he's asked, well, who is my neighbor? Again, like who counts? And what does it mean to count? If they count, what does it mean to love them? Who will I love? And what they, they, you know, not us, what they were doing is paring down the list. 
to make it more manageable. And I thought about this. It's like, you know, on your phone, when you take a picture and you want to like manipulate that photo, there's a, there's a crop feature. And when you crop, you know, you edit and then you like, you, you move the picture around or you shrink the frame so that you eliminate the stuff that's in the picture that you didn't want so that you can adjust that picture to make it look exactly what you want it to look like. And um, you're basically cropping that picture so that it fits in frame or you get some, uh, you know, uh, person out of the background that you didn't want that photo bombed you uh, that you didn't see when you were taking the picture, right? We've all done this. And so our tendency here is to crop down love and neighbor to make it manageable so that it can fit in the frame of our lives and so that we can eliminate that which we are those that are more difficult to love. But while we want to cut Jesus's teachings down to size, he says this in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Does anyone want to go home? Jesus just expanded back. It's like, I thought I got rid of that picture the way it looked. Jesus just opened the frame much larger than even I originally thought. And this is, of the six antitheses in my mind, the hardest. It's the hardest saying. Let's just all say that that's hard. But it is the grand finale to this part. It is, and it is the foundation upon which everything that he said in the antitheses is built upon, but also the entire life and ministry of Jesus. Loving my enemy and praying for those who would abuse me. Now, why in the world would I want to do this? Why should I And, you know, if you're like me, you can make a list in your mind. Well, if I do this, then I'll be a witness of Jesus. And maybe I'll make the world a better place. And maybe these people that I love, they'll become Christians. Maybe I just want to do the right thing. Or maybe I just want to be a good Christian. And if I do this, maybe they'll come to church. And as we've talked about, maybe the world will be a better place so that people can flourish and thrive together. And these are all good answers. But Jesus doesn't give any of those reasons for this unbelievable, incredibly difficult thing that he's calling us to. And I'm going to borrow a little bit here from one of my favorite Bible teachers, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. He says that there's no explicit strategy. None of these things that we think about, there's no explicit strategy for what's behind this. So what Jesus is about to say has nothing to do with our ideas of why I should love my neighbor. But this is his reasoning. And I think it's how we should respond to this incredibly difficult impossible thing. He says, number one, look at what God does. Verse 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
what, what's going on here? Jesus is saying, look at the weather. Look at the sun and the rain, and you can draw some conclusions. What a strange thing to say. I mean, your weather app on your phone can now be a devotional tool for you. There are sections in scripture, uh, verses and concepts that tell us that the natural world can tell us something about the supernatural world. Like Psalm 8.3, the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And are you, if, if you've been a Christian any time and you spent time in nature, you know, you've probably looked up at the stars and God's creation and just been blown away. I mean, don't you feel just so small, but like you've been blown away at the thought that God made all this and it's so far beyond you and you're so tiny, but that God knows you. And I know I do that all the time. I'm very uh, creation oriented in my, uh, in my spiritual bent. And uh, I just look around me sometimes and I'm just blown away. I bet you have too. And then in Psalm 136, 9, Psalmist says, the moon and stars govern the night. His love endures forever. So the psalmist here is looking up at the moon and the stars. And what, what is he concluding? He's concluding that God's love endures forever. He thinks of God's love. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just looked up at, at the sky and thought, it's amazing. It's just amazing. And it's the beauty of it. Or there's something in our souls that draws out of us this idea when we look at that, that God loves us. I, I feel this when I'm in a national park, whether it's Zion, Yosemite, or Bryce, or Grand Canyon, some of the ones that I visited, I'm just blown away. Or like if I'm having a perfect sunny day surfing and the waves are nice and glassy and only waist high, and it's not a hard paddle out, and the sun is warm on my back, and the water is reasonably warm. It's never actually warm in California. Or sometimes I can just walk around town and see something, a tree or almost anything. And uh, I can think, man, God, you made all this. I went to see my eye doctor um, uh, a month or so ago, and he's a Christian, and he has this big, you know, diagram of the eye in his uh, in the office where you go and do, you know, the the tests and everything with the different lenses and all. And he was talking about how like he often will just like ask somebody, hey, have you ever considered the eye? And he just like looks at the diagram and he talks about it. And if you just look at the eyeball, you know, um, it's incredible. And uh, my eye doctor just says, you know, I, I witness that way. I talk to people about God. I say, hey, you ever look at the eye? Um, and what Jesus is doing here is like something even, even bigger. He's saying, just look at your daily routine. They are walking down the road along farms, and they're seeing ranches and vineyards and homes of people that they know and people that they don't know. And they know that in this house, there's a good person or in that house, there's a bad person. They see the devout and they see the sinners. They see homes of their fellow uh, Hebrew people. They see homes of Romans. And 
Jesus is saying they all get the same sun. They all get the same rain. So how does God treat them, good and bad? And all of this is making Jesus' listeners think, what does all this mean? I think we could all do a little more of this, couldn't we? Of contemplating even the things that we see on a daily basis through that lens of what God is doing in the world. When we think through this lens, we think about us and how we divide people as well today. We divide people into the nice or the rude or the generous or selfish, Christian, Muslim, Trump, Biden, mask wearer, not a mask wearer, protester, patriot, heterosexual, gay, people that will let me in on the freeway or not. And what Jesus is saying is all of us, we get the same beautiful days. We get the same creation. We all get what we need to live. What does that tell us about people, about God? What does that do to our theology that says that all God's blessings should go to the good people? And of course, you and I were on that list. And this, this simple thing, just kind of, it just kind of confronts you, doesn't it? It's like right in your face. I've noticed that most of my thinking about when I contemplate God's creation or, you know, something that I see in my day-to-day living is about me. I think about what, how much God loves me. But the lesson here is look at what God does for everyone. And when we do that, leads us to the second thing that Jesus says. You'll reflect his image if you do this. Verse 45, you may be the children of your father in heaven. Not that you would be saved or be born again, but you would resemble your father. You would look like one of his children. It's the same phrasing or the same way that Jesus talks about those that are peacemakers earlier in chapter five. They will be called the children of God. That is those who walk through life in a way that they bring peace or they seek peace or they work to bring peace to conflict rather than exacerbating it or running away from it. They are called the children of God. And Jesus is saying, when we love like this, we will look like a child of God because we bear his image. In Genesis 1, uh, the creation account talks about how all of us, all human beings, have been stamped with this image of God. We all have it. And our calling from the, various, the, the, the earliest of humanity was to reflect that image to one another. So the end goal for someone who's following Jesus is to reflect, to grow into someone who reflects God. And we know from John's epistle that God is love. Is that our goal? I mean, truly, is that our goal? By the way, Jesus reflects that perfectly. But is our goal as Jesus followers, as those who call ourselves Christians, are we seeking to reflect the image of God that that shows or demonstrates his incredible love 
for everybody. In verse 48, we see that this is not something that just automatically happens to any of us. He says, be perfect. Therefore, as your father, as your heavenly father is perfect. And this word is not perfect like, you know, you not without mistakes, but um, it means complete, mature, adult, or you've in full development. That is the end goal. You see, the mark of maturity is how we treat our enemies. And this is not something, as I said, that would just comes along. It's something that's part of the maturing process for us, that we're continually moving toward this perfection, this maturity. We're becoming more and more like our Father in heaven. We're reflecting his image in that way. And it is a long and arduous process, isn't it? None of us have arrived. None of us are there yet. It's not a, it's not a place you land and go, there, I made it. It's like a lifelong thing. It's a pursuit. But this is how Jesus describes being an adult Christian. Most of us find other ways to define our maturity, maturity that are uh, easier to attain. If I could, if I can quote a lot of Bible verses or if I serve a lot or if I put a sticker on my automobile, if I put myself in a certain category of theology or doctrine, I, I start to feel better about myself. Uh, I, I read a meme um, a couple of weeks ago. It says, you know, so many Christians' mouths are full of Bible verses, but their hearts full of hate. You know, it makes us have to ask the question, what is the end goal for us? Is it to continually to grow in maturity so that we can even get, so that we love our enemies? I can only imagine that Jesus' hearers wrestled with these same questions and doubts and, and like, you know, apprehensions about being able to do that. And that's why I think Jesus drives this idea home by asking four questions. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And then in verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do you just love those who love you? I mean, Jesus, and here Jesus uses like the worst possible, the worst imaginable example, even a tax collector. Not like our tax collectors. These were people that uh, tied themselves to the Roman Empire and would exact taxes from their own countrymen. And they were perceived as traitors. And Jesus says, even they, do this. Even they love those that love them back. And then he uses another word. He says, greet, do you greet your own people? This is just like, you know, saying, I see you, acknowledging them, treating them with kindness. And he, he says, don't even pagans do that. And that's not like somebody that bows down and worships rocks or something. It's any one to them that is not Jewish and following 
the God Yahweh. And the truth is we all have our own people, right? We have the people that we look for and, we, and, and the rest of the people are invisible to us. We greet only those who are like us. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, sums this up. And he says, there's only one approach to living the words of this text. It begins when we confess who is our enemy, and it ends when we learn to love them as our neighbor. Until we name our enemies, we can't live these words of Jesus. And until we invite them into our home, or treat them as our neighbor, or love them as we love ourselves. We do not live these words until we regard them, dwell with them, and embrace them as God regards, dwells with, and embraces them. We cannot live these words of Jesus. You see, the truth is we are never more like Jesus than when we love someone who is hard for us to love. When I say that, I think about, you know, the last person that I want to see, you know, the person that I'm most in conflict at the time, or maybe a conversation went bad and I, or like, you know, uh, I used to work there and, you know, there was bad blood and it's like, you just don't want to see them. And then somehow in this town, you end up running into them, right? And it's that point that, We could take pause and just say, okay, um, how am I going to be like Jesus in this moment? Am I going to love this person? Or am I going to count them as my enemy? And let's just, I mean, let's just be honest. It is hard to love people who have hurt us, people that are so different than us, people that have a different lifestyle or different value system. You know, it's it's actually impossible, except for the realization that this is what Jesus did for us. This teaching of Jesus prompts so many questions. And I think we have to be honest and say, you know, acknowledge that we have them because Jesus isn't saying, let's just be nicer people. Although all of us could do much better than that, but he's not also not saying, you know, you cannot defend yourself. He's not saying you have to be a doormat or stay with people that are toxic or dangerous. So many questions. And honestly, I would love to be able to say I have all the answers, but the truth is I don't even know all the questions, let alone the answers. But I do know this. Loving people is to live out the gospel. I mean, we talk about this almost every week, how God does not condemn us, but loves us through his son, Jesus. And if you're a person that you feel that you're so far from God, that God, you know, like you're just beyond the reach of God's love. Everything that Jesus said totally is in conflict with that. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to love the world and to sacrifice his life for us. And he showed us 
as a human being. He was God in a human body. And he showed us what it looks like to live that life as a human being. And while we are still sinners, Paul tells us Christ died for us. You see, none of us are ever so far from God's love that we cannot be reached. And the idea that God has like rejected you or us or that person is totally antithetical to what Jesus is teaching here. He lived this. A couple of closing thoughts that I think help us drive this idea home. First of all, without this concept, without our full understanding, without love, we're going to get every doctrine wrong. Um, the whole matter will be off kilter unless we grasp this. We'll veer off. Our faith will be wrong. Our Christianity will be wrong. And we'll end up with a twisted, corroded product, a lifestyle that is in some time, sometimes even an uglier life than a life without faith. Because love is the core ethic of Jesus and it is the core characteristic of God. It's kind of like, um, you know, how you have to, whether you have a garage code, you know, one of those punch codes outside, or, you know, you have a storage unit where you have to, like, type in the, uh, the code to get in. I have so many of these in my brain, and, I, and, you know, usually the pound sign is part of that. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm older, but I can never remember. Does the pound sign go in the front or the back? And I'm typing it over and over again and nothing happens. The pound sign is love. And it's at the beginning and the end of the code. And if we don't get that, if the church fails to grab that, if you and I as Christians or Christ followers in this day and age, if we don't grasp this and it doesn't become central to the way we think, um, the priorities that we have, the way we do life, the way we respond, the things that we care about. If love is not at the center of that, then um, we're not reflecting who God is. And then the last thought is this, that love is the only force capable of trans transforming an enemy into a friend. I've said this already, but how did God win us over? He won us over with his kindness, with his grace. If you are struggling or you're thinking, you know, it's like something needs to change in my life and you're exploring faith, I want to say to you that God calls you his friend because of what Jesus has done. And all you must do is acknowledge that in your life and reach out to him in faith. And in a simple prayer, you could just say, God, I am, I'm messed up. I need you. And would you come into my life and help me walk with you? Um, and for those of us who have done that, how is God going to use us in winning other people over, whether they're friends or enemies? And I'm confident that each of us, whether we work at a church or in an office or at a school 
or on a construction site, or you drive around and sell stuff, all of us, whether we're in a house with kids, um, all of us are going to have an opportunity to reflect God's image this week. And the only question is, what will they see? I hope that what they see is a reflection of who God is, which is love. And they see in us the true image of God. And in those instances where God gives us opportunity to love our enemies, I hope that they see that we can. Well, that's my message. Uh, Thanks for watching. If you're watching right now, all my Sunridge people, we'll see you next week online. If you're listening, thanks for checking us out. If you have questions or we can help you in any way, hit us up on our website, sunridgechurch.org, or you can send us an email at info at sunridgechurch.org. God bless you. Uh, I'm so looking forward to Christmas, and I hope that you can join us for our Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m. And uh, again, if you're looking for a church, come and join us at 1030 on Sunday morning outside. Thanks. Have a great week. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question or you just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.